0: I'm Daniel Libet. This is the NM Fishbowl Podcast. It's Tuesday, November 6th, 2018. As we enter the final month of college football's regular season, teams are battling for bowl eligibility, and highly paid coaches are pocketing additional handouts Of the on-field successes of their players. Alas, it's the annual harvest time cash grab of intercollegiate athletics, and nobody keeps better tabs on the feedlot than today's podcast guest. Steve Berkowitz is a USA Today sports projects reporter and editor who stewards the newspaper's annual databases of college coaching pay packages and athletic department budgets. Berkowitz has been overseeing these compilations for over a decade, and in the last few years, he has taken to Twitter like a bot to produce real-time reporting on all the triggered bonuses that coaches rake in per the terms of their contracts. In our ensuing conversation, Berkowitz and I talk about accounting for the money in college sports, how USA Today compiles the numbers, where they come from, how reliable they are, and why the endeavor is worthwhile. Our discussion runs for about 70 minutes, and so, without further ado, I give you Steve Berkowitz. Steve Berkowitz. Steve Berkowitz, welcome to the NM Fishbowl Podcast.
1: Hey, thanks a lot for having me on.
0: All right, so a a couple of weeks ago, I had on Rick Mace, the Washington Washington Post sports reporter who's been covering the uh, DJ Durkin scandal and all of the shenanigans thereof, and we spoke in the lead-up to the decision of the Board of Regents ultimately not to recommend Durkin's firing, and then I think the whole nation has seeing what's happened since then. So Durkin has now been fired. Um, and I think it's great that I'm now talking to you at the denouement of this story because it's ending like how the story often ends, where a coach is deemed to be Ill, uh, ill-suited uh, for, his, for his job, and yet he walks away with a, a, uh, a boatload of money. And I know specifically about Durkin's situation because you tweeted about this a couple of days ago, Uh, He is owed $5.5 million per his contract um, because, among other things, Maryland has decided not to try to fire him for cause. Why don't college coaches, college football coaches, seem to ever get fired for cause even when it appears that they are being fired for cause?
1: Uh, Well, it sort of depends on how you find cause, uh, that's number one, um, and there have been some instances in recent years where schools have made efforts to fire coaches for cause or have given, uh, given indications that they were planning to fire coaches for cause uh, and then backed off for legal reasons or whatever. But Louisville uh, is an example recently of a, of a school that fired uh, Rick Pitino for cause and now Patino is suing them. Uh, for the amount of money that's owed on his contract. So, um, you know, there are instances where uh, firing a coach for cause could be seemingly pretty obvious uh, within uh, the way that the contract defines cause, but because of the amounts of money that are involved here, uh, you know, it gives coaches reason uh, to be litigious about it or to threaten to be litigious about it and uh, so that has, I think that has something to do with it as well. So, I mean, you know, it, it, I, think the, I think those are the things that, that go into the calculus for how schools try to approach this.
0: I don't know if this is something you know off the top. So you mentioned in Patino, Patino was fired for cause and the cause was that he essentially got the school or, or, or subjected the, the school to NCAA violations um is it different when the coach is not when ncaa violations aren't on the table when the coach is basically behaved or potentially behaved unethically or created a culture of of um abuse or 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 things along those that nature It, it does seem that that the trigger if there is a trigger for when schools are are ready to fight fight it out in court almost always comes down to whether or not NCAA violations have, have occurred.
1: I don't know. I, I can't, I can't quantify that for you, uh, on, on any basis. Uh, I, I just, I, I just couldn't tell you one way or the other, whether or not, you know, any, any sort of four cause terminations are always geared around NCAA, uh, violations as opposed to any other, uh, as opposed to any other, Reason for a school to cite as a termination for cause.
0: So let's talk a little bit about Durkin's contract. Um, one of the things that you noted in in a subsequent tweet um, after you had tweeted out the uh, the amount that he was owed was that there is no the contract his contract doesn't have any mitigation or offset, meaning that even if he were, God forbid, to find another job in college football, Maryland is still going to owe him. The full the full amount of it of his buyout. Um, in looking at his contract, is his contract pretty familiar? Is it written kind of off the general template that these contracts are written?
1: Um, there really isn't one template that schools follow. Um, schools have a lot of different uh, ways that they go about doing this, and they're refining them all the time. Um, I mean, I think there are some sort of basic principles that, that tend to, to follow across from contract to contract um, and you do see similarities in the contracts that are written by schools that are part of the same university system uh, but that's not always the case um, so they these things sort of uh, end up in many cases just being negotiated or drafted or a school has a particular basic contract model that it will use uh, you know from one coach in a given sport. Uh, to the next as they go along, and they'll work with that uh, coach's representative to make changes within that basic template. But but to say that there's a template across the across the country for all schools, I think uh, that would be that would be inaccurate.
0: Is there anybody that stands out, or any school that stands out in your mind as having done a creative or interesting? contract with with a with a coach particularly along the lines of what happens in the scenario where the school wants out of that arrangement or, or are we finding s- basic similarities um, it, you know from school to school at least in principle of how it how, how they negotiate or how they uh, come to terms on you know on exit strategies with coaches
1: well I mean you know I mean the, the basic stuff that, that, that Cause termination, you know, it's basically all the things that you would basically think of as being, you know, worthy of termination for cause, whether it's an N.C.A. violation or a serious criminal matter or uh, being involved in, you know, some other activity that would, you know, have a really bad impact on the university. And some of these things are sort of open to interpretation, um, and that while. There are provisions in contracts that give the university the ability to fire a coach for cause. It doesn't obligate the coach for the school to fire the coach for cause. So it just gives them the ability to do so if they make a certain finding. Um, so I mean, it, it, again, it's 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 hard to know how all of this is gonna how all of this will work out uh, at the end of the day. Um, and you talked about the, the mitigation and offset provisions. Um, You know, there are a variety of different strategies involved that schools take uh, and approaches that they take in that, uh, you know, some schools uh, are, you know, write very elaborate uh, exit provisions that require the coach to make a bona fide effort to find other employment uh, and that they, uh, you know, the the income from that employment offsets the buyout and that the coach can't deliberately go out and get a job that is backloaded uh, so that you, know, you sort of circumvent the intent of the, of the offset provision and so forth. Um, and then there are schools that simply don't include any language in the contract about uh, mitigation or offset, and they just leave the contract silent on the matter, uh, which you know, essentially is the same as uh, having no particular obligation. But in some states, there can be a common law uh, requirement to mitigate uh, a school's uh, a schools liquidated damages payment owed to a coach. So it can vary from state to state. Um, and there are some contracts that are specific in the other direction that say specifically that the coach has no uh, obligation to find other employment, and even if he does take another job, that there will be no offset uh, of what he is owed by the school that's firing him.
0: I'm trying to remember if this was uh, in my head. I'm I'm thinking about Tom Crean's contract as Indiana's basketball coach when he was there, um, but I might be I might be confusing. But there was some, uh, contract that I had looked at at the time. The same time that New Mexico had fired, uh, Craig Neal, um, because it was pretty dramatic in terms of how to to your point how elaborate, um, and detailed. Some of the bigger schools have been in terms of th- those provisions, as compared to New Mexico. New Mexico had uh, effectively a million-dollar buyout with Craig Neal, and there was a mitigation and offset term, but it was so nebulous and and, and, and so loose that it effectively didn't it didn't uh, compel Neal to to find any other employment. Um, I, is, is that a big school small school thing or is that just a who has who has the most aggressive lawyers looking at it kind of thing in terms of where we find some more of these uh, elaborate or detailed uh, uh,
1: remediations in contracts
0: um I think
1: that by and large schools that are at smaller places uh, with with smaller revenues are you know, tend to want to have the coach uh, be required to mitigate an offset, but that's not the case everywhere. Um, there, there are smaller schools that don't, you know, either leave the contract silent or uh, don't uh, require it. I mean, and that, again, that becomes a negotiation between the coach and his representatives, and you know, in the schools. So, I mean, you know, everything, everything in these agreements is, is you know, subject to negotiation. Um, I'm not sure. That there is sort of a trend one way or the other. I mean, there are big, there are very high-income schools that have very elaborate uh, buyout uh, provisions and mitigation requirements, uh, and there are some really high-dollar schools that uh, specifically say that there is no obligation. Uh, so, I mean, it runs, it sort of runs both ways at both ends of the at both ends of the financial spectrum in college in the major college sports.
0: Um, so earlier this week, we're talking on a Friday now, earlier this week, the athletics Nicole Auerbach wrote a piece, a big explanatory piece about the kind of modern explosion in these college coaching buyouts. Um, and, and her piece, sort of the nut graph of her piece included data that was compiled from, from your, your publication, uh, USA Today, in which she determined that Effectively, American universities were paying at least $70 million last year in college. She didn't spe- specify. It seemed like either college football coaching buyouts or just college coaching buyouts. Um, what I liked about the piece is very up high in it. She quoted another former podcast podcast guest of mine, the economist Andy Schwartz, who noted that the economic system of college sports is predicated firstly on the labor not getting you know, a, a, an opportunity to, to be compensated however they see fit. So there's a subjugation of the labor, and then all of the money, therefore, uh, that you can put into the system basically goes to the the coaches or the administrators, at least those who – the salary money. Um, but then she interviewed several athletic directors as part of her piece, including um, LSU's athletic director, Joe Oliva, um, who, who said – uh, kind of reflecting the the consensus of the other AD she spoke to that he hated this system. He thought that it was kind of impossible and and intractable for an individual school to get out of these very one-sided buyout agreements with coaches because you would effectively be unilaterally disarming. You'd be the only school to do it, and you'd lose all the coaching candidates you'd want. Um, he, you know, Oliva said he didn't blame the coaches. He says the coaches are just trying to get as much as they can, um, and he didn't find any blame in that. Um, and so I find this to be a somewhat exasperating story to read in, in a sense where there's no there's no accountability. You know, everybody is acting like their hands are tied behind their backs, that they're at the mercy of this system, out of their control, but which they're the beneficiaries for. Joe Oliva makes, I think, if I understand correctly, almost a million dollars a year. So, And he's on a multi-year contract, so he's benefiting in the same one-sidedness as any coach he would he would presumably hire under those terms. Um, I'd be curious, uh, I'm sure, you, I, I imagine you read the piece, I, I, I'd be curious for you to kind of dig in with me a little bit on this phenomenon of these coaching buyouts and where the blame really does lie, and if schools really are in, unable to do anything other than play along with this uh, with this explosion.
1: Well, I think that you know the the reality of these of these situations are within the coaching compensation marketplace as as allowed, you know, has resulted in these agreements being uh, guaranteed. I mean, you know, the coaches. Uh, From the coach's end of it, they're concerned about, you know, making commitments to schools um, and then being fired if they don't win enough games or, you know, there may be things that may or may not be within their control that result in them not being successful. Um, You know, and and at the same time, the coaches also, uh, if they uh, breach their agreements and take a job elsewhere, uh, they or their future employers are required to pay uh, liquidated damages payments for breaching the contract. So some of that goes both ways. If a a coach leaves a school, that a school uh, generally will get paid. Uh, And, you know, it's not coming out of the – it's almost never coming out of the pocket of the coach. It's a a cost that ends up being absorbed by the school that hires him. Right. Um, But, I mean, you know, these – you know, a lot of this comes down, you know, this, 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 sort of setup of these contracts basically comes down to the leverage in these, in these arrangements and the schools, you know, are looking for looking to get these coaches lined up and are willing to, to do, you know, what it takes, uh, to get that done. And if that's, you know, and if that's the way contract is sort of become an industry standard, um, then you know that becomes part of a negotiation. I suppose it's possible that if the school, if a school, uh, paid a coach a sufficient amount of money, um, that the coach might be willing to have a contract in, in which he's not guaranteed anything. Uh, but I would uh, tend to, to doubt that. I mean, the coaches are concerned about you know what comes next for them if they get uh, if they get fired. And as you pointed out. Um, the athletics directors' contracts with the universities are structured the same way. Um, the athletics directors would get the athletics directors who get fired, by and large, uh, are entitled to buyouts uh, or some sort of some form of severance. There are a few ADs. There are a handful of ADs who work for their universities on an at-will basis. Um, Indiana's Fred Glass being one of them, um, and so there are university procedures that would be involved with their terminations it would be similar to other university employees um, so but I mean I think the, the biggest the biggest thing in the way contracts are structured has to do with who has the leverage in these discussions and you know then that then that's sort of what it comes down to.
0: Well and the other thing uh, you know kind of to amplify the point there's, there doesn't seem to be many built-in incentives for anybody to hold the line because n- this money's not coming out of any, any of their pockets, and, and they're, they're likely not to be harmed by having to pay buyouts. I mean, the athletic director, the university president, or the board of regents, or some combination of, the, of, that, of those groups— uh, you know, I'm, there, there's just no. If, if there's a buyout, it's potential. That there, there's a potential certainly that you know, if a school keeps having to buy out coaches, at some point, this will uh, this will fall on the athletic director. Um, but more likely than not, you know, there this is somebody else's money that they're throwing around, um, and it doesn't. It's not even like a corporation where you know there's there's uh, there's shareholders to hold you accountable for this. Uh, there's, there's effectively nobody that that, you know, in, in any practical sense that's going to hold people accountable for this until, again, the number gets so outrageous that, you know, at that point, somebody may may be fired and then be entitled to their own buyout. Uh,
1: uh, well, I mean, yes, I mean, at, there are I mean, athletics directors have lost their jobs uh, around the lack of success of football coaches. Uh, that sort that had been at Nebraska uh, last year where the football team did not do well they ended up firing the coach the athletic director also lost his job I would I can't you know you I can't say absolutely for certain that you know those two things were 100 percent connected but I think that's you know a reasonably fair reading of, of the situation there and that does happen with athletics directors um, I mean the notion of you know look, who's pocket it comes out of. I mean in it's no different than in professional sports where if a coach uh, or a player uh, has a guaranteed contract that for example that exists in the NBA or major League Baseball um, that if the team decides they're done with that player or that coach and they have a guaranteed contract um, and a general manager uh, you know chooses to get rid of the player you know perhaps he has to run that decision up the flagpole with the owner. Uh, who ultimately I suppose the owner's bottom line takes a hit when you do something like that. Um, But, you know, again, the question of whose money is it, um, you know, I mean, it's, again, it's not coming out of the GM's pocket in professional sports. Um, So, you know, it's, Th- that, that whole part of it is, is a little hard, little hard for me to follow on the accountability level that you're talking about. but I mean it, it well there, there right
0: are, but in professional I mean th- that's true in professional sports we're witness to lots of buyouts or, or contracts that you know or players or coaches are paid or uh, continued to be paid on even if they're not ultimately performing. but there is there is an owner. Uh, you know, the owner, you know, that that entity in college sports is lacking because the Board of Regents is not the same as an accountability mechanism in college sports, or a university president is not the same as an accountability mechanism in college sports that an owner is in pro sports, where there really is at some point an entity that is directly being impacted um, by, by you know, uh, effectively wasted money. Um that maybe that's maybe that's where I'm seeing a difference. Even well, if ultimately I mean, you
1: know, it's, been, yeah, I mean, it's no secret that college sports colleges and universities sports programs don't have shareholders.
0: Right, right. Um, so Joe Oliva's former deputy at LSU is now the athletic director at New Mexico, which is, you know, really on the other side of the spectrum in terms of schools being able to afford intercollegiate athletics or, or or how well they are at at uh, at enjoying in the in the riches of intercollegiate athletics. I, I kind of wanted to dive into with a little a little bit with you about the scenario that's going on or some of the situations that are going on in New Mexico because Eddie Nunez um, is facing his own potential buyout dilemma with the Lobo head football coach Bob Davey, um, which is kind of a dynamic that I think captures all of the aforementioned Things we were discussing last year, Davey was investigated for a series of allegations dealing with player abuse and potential uh, interference and sexual assault investigations of some of his players in recent years. He was ultimately suspended for a month over the summer um, and coughed up, I think, thirty some thousand dollars of his of his um, of his salary as part of that suspension. What I had heard in reporting on that story throughout much of last year was that there were a lot of people, including decision makers, people at the level of the Board of Regents, who wanted to fire Bob Davy. But at that point, he had almost $2 million uh, that he would have been owed as part of a buyout if they had fired him without cause. And there just wasn't the gumption to try to get into a situation where they would be facing off in court or in arbitration, and so he's been allowed to kind of continue. And now, you know, again, a school like New Mexico is facing. I think his buyout would now be almost about a million and a half. The team has performed much worse in the last couple of years than in the years before that. Um, and what I just find kind of stunning, but not surprising is that if Bob Davey is bought out this year, New Mexico would have ha- would have bought out the last three football coaches it had o- who all experienced completely different scenarios. Rocky Long was a success, um, an on-field success. They bought him out. Uh, Mike Loxley, his successor, was a just a, a, a glimmering failure as a football coach. He was bought out. And now Bob Davey is something in between. And there's discussion about buying him out. I just wonder, regardless of the school, or maybe even more acutely for New Mexico, is there is it sort of set up so that every coach is who who's who's ultimately doesn't decide to stay there forever um, is going to be paid something on the way out? You just can't you can't find in, in a practical way another situation occurring.
1: Uh, Well, I mean, the only way that you can have that occur is if the coach leaves, goes to another school, takes another job, in which case the school that's losing the coach might get paid um, for the coach breaching the contract, Uh, but rarely do you see situations where schools simply allow a coach to coach to the end of his contract um, and just let the deal expire and Uh, leave it alone um, because of concerns over the stability of the program or the future of the program or the ability of the coach to recruit. Uh, If a coach has, you know, a year or so left on his deal, then it can be difficult for the coach to recruit um, because it's hard to know what his future at the school will be. Um, So, I mean, you know, that, I think that's the reason, I think that's the reason why you see, schools make moves if they're going to change coaches doing so in, in, you know, under a circumstance where they're simply not just sort of letting the contract expire, but rather taking action before you get to that point. Um, So I suppose in that sense, uh, yes, you generally see coaches uh, getting bought out of contracts, but that's the reason why that occurs.
0: You, going back to Nicole Auerbach's article, there was sort of a, an, an end note of feudalism in that, that this is just the way it is, and no one really knows how to get themselves out of the situation. Do you, what, what is your expectation for this, the trend line of these coaching contracts and their buyouts?
1: Well, I mean, it is, you know, I mean, it's no secret that coaches, uh, on average, are getting paid more every year um and the result of that is going to be that the value of buyouts are going to increase along with that so um you know it's hard to see the amount of money the coaches are being owed uh declining uh if the amount of money that the coaches are being paid is increasing so i think those two things sort of go hand in hand with one another um it becomes then a question of again of negotiation and leverage as to whether or not uh, a school uh, feels the need to fully guarantee uh, all elements of a contract or whether or not as with the case that maryland maryland's deal with dj durkin where maryland uh agree, you know, maryland's contract with durkin Required the school to pay 65% of what they would otherwise have paid him had he stayed. So, um, you know, whether or not schools can, how schools can do in negotiating that with the coaches. I mean, again, all of these things are subject to negotiation where a school may say that we want to, we don't want to have to fully guarantee the contract. And perhaps the coach's agent is then able to get more money. Uh, at the you know, in, in terms of what the coach would be paid I mean so its sort of you know, it sort of goes back and forth but um, but yeah I mean I think as long as, as long as you know compensation amounts are going up, the buyout amounts are going to go up.
0: Let's talk about your work at USA Today and USA Today's work in, in compiling the data. When did you start at USA today?
1: I've been with USA Today since uh, June of 2000.
0: And when did USA Today start doing the kind of annual gathering of the financial data of of all these different college sports programs?
1: Um, We did a football head coach salary project in the 2006 season. Um, We didn't do it with an eye. When we undertook it for the first time, we didn't go into it thinking that this was going to be something that we would do annually. Uh, in perpetuity Uh, we did it once and uh, you know people I think sort of knew generally that coaches made a lot of money but when you sort of really empirically uh, demonstrated this and got all the numbers for all of the coaches and put it all together so that there was some context to it um, that people were were kind of surprised by it and there was a lot of reader interest in it Um, so when we did the football one uh, folks, uh, asked us, well, you know, when are you doing one for men's basketball? Um, and so we ended up doing one for men's basketball, uh, you know, during the winter of 06, 07. Um, and that also was pretty well received. And so we decided to do the football head coaches again, uh, in 07. Uh, there was some debate as to whether or not we should go back and do it again or not. We chose to do it again in 07, just to sort of see, what one year's difference would look like, um, so we went ahead and did it again, and did the basketball one again. Um, and actually, in 2008, we didn't do it. Uh, we worked on, we did some other some other projects uh, around uh, college sports finance, and didn't do the football coaches thing. Um, and people were sort of asking about it, and so we revived it again in 09. And in 09, when we did it, we decided to add. We wanted to add something to it, uh, so we started doing the compensation paid to all of the football assistant coaches for the FBS schools. And uh, that model is what we've sort of continued to do every year since. Um, And a couple of years ago, we added on uh, getting the compensation for the football team's head strength coaches. Um, And we've added on, and we've done some other add ons to the data that we collect and, and stuff like that. Uh, over time, but that's sort of how it's evolved. Um, and like I said, we didn't go into it thinking, "Hey, it's going to." This is something that we want to do every year. It's just sort of gone that way, and you know, it continues to be pretty well. It continues to be pretty well received, um, and draws reader interest. And so we continue to do it. Tell me
0: you know, kind of broad strokes, how in a in a given year you collect the the information? Is this just a just a blizzard of public records requests that you put out? Is there a kind of schedule of, of how you gather all this stuff?
1: Um, no, it's just a lot of making a lot of open records requests and a lot of follow-up calls behind those open records requests. Uh, to either get information that was missing or to have to update information that changes, uh, even because you know, so we really start this process in late May and early June. So stuff changes over the course of the summer, and schools have different fiscal years when uh, salaries change. And so it requires uh, quite a bit of follow up work during the course of the summer and into the fall. Um, so I mean that's that's basically how we do it with the public schools. With the private schools, uh, we get in from, we, we we obtain uh, the private schools uh, IRS uh, nine ninety forms. These are tax records that financial records that uh, all nonprofit organizations have to file with the IRS every year. And colleges and universities, uh, by and large, are organized as nonprofit organizations. Um, So, And those uh, documents require all of those organizations to disclose the compensation of their officers, directors, trustees, and other key employees, and then anybody who doesn't fall into one of those categories, which have certain definitions to them, the school has to, or the entity, the nonprofit organization, has to disclose the compensation of its five most highly paid people who do not fall into one of those categories.
0: And of course, reliably, coaches will always be among the top five most highly paid uh, employees at any of these schools.
1: At most of them, not all of them. Uh, for the for a really long time, uh, there were no coaches on Stanford's disclosure. Um, and It wasn't until sort of towards the end of Jim Harbaugh's time at Stanford that you saw Harbaugh's compensation disclosed there. There have been a couple of instances where the women's basketball coach has appeared on the form in one year because she had a whole bunch of deferred compensation get paid out in one lump uh, in a particular year but there are some schools where coaches don't make enough money to uh crack the top five but if you're talking about the schools within the football bowl subdivision yeah by and large you know the football coach the men's basketball coach the athletics director uh, in some instances, the women's basketball coach, uh, or the coach of some other, uh, you know, I want to say they're not non-revenue sports because for these schools they are revenue sports. But depending on you know regional interests, so for example, at Boston College, the men's hockey coach typically is one of the five most highly paid folks. So uh, that's but that's where we get the private school information from, and those records are lagged time wise. And they're calculated in a different way than what we try to do in our calculations of for real time compensation. Because what the IRS forms do is report that compensation in arrears, because they're reporting it, you know, what happened uh, you know, in a prior year. Uh, and because schools have time, you're given lag time from the ends of their uh, fiscal years to file their forms, uh, the information is generally about a year and a half old by the time we get it. But it's the best window that we have um, on private school compensation.
0: The other thing that you guys do is you uh, do the the, uh, the budgets and the revenues, notably of of college athletic departments as well. So, for example, I know right now, and this has been widely reported after USA Today did the number crunching, that Texas makes over or brings in over two hundred million dollars of revenue. Texas and Texas A and M both bring over. $200 million of revenue. Can you tell me about the process and where you've gleaned those revenue figures for programs?
1: Yeah, it's the same deal, but it's all done through open records requests. Uh, the All of the schools in Division One, under the NCAA's rules are required to uh, file every January a financial report that covers their revenues and expenses across a wide range of categories and it's done on a sport by sport basis. Uh, and so those reports that are turned in in January uh, reflect the most recent fiscal year, which fiscal years generally and for colleges and universities in June 30th. So a fiscal year that ends in one year of June 30th, the schools have to file a report about the athletics uh, part by uh, mid January of the following year. Um, and we collect all of those records from the schools, uh, again, using open records requests. Uh, the private schools have to report the information to the NCAA. Uh, they don't disclose, they, since they're not covered by open records requirements, private schools don't give these to us. Uh, and the NCAA itself is a private nonprofit organization, so it's also Uh, does not have to cooperate with open records requests, so that we do not get these financial reports from the private schools. Um, You can get information about private school athletic finance through uh, some reporting that's required by the U.S. Department of Education, Um, but there have been uh, a lot of problems with those data, and they follow a methodology that is different from the NCAA's methodology, so we don't uh, we, we don't sort of blend or commingle uh, those two things. Uh, we just stick with the NCAA form, um, so, but again, that's how, but it, again, it's just going through open records requests to get these documents.
0: So let's, I'll pick up on that. Let's talk about the methodology the NCAA uses, and then the methodology that you use, because there's, if you go onto USA Today's website, there's a whole page, a rather long page kind of describing. Um, describing the methodology you use, and also describing updates to that methodology. So, for example, in 2015, uh, your website says that a new category was created um, to clarify that an athletics department should report debt service payments on facilities as part of its operating expenses. And for anybody who is a follower of the Lobos, of New Mexico Lobos, as I'm sure this is the case with many other schools, this is an issue. Uh, the University of New Mexico had a $60 million uh, renovation in 2010 of its basketball arena, the Pit, And for a number of years, it, it's, it itself kept the debt service f- uh, for the bond obligations for that uh, renovation on its athletics department budget. But then about a year, I believe, ago, um, they decided to just take it off the athletic department's books uh, in large part because the athletic department kept coming up um, showing a deficit. And this was one of the ways of, of eliminating or at least reducing the deficit. Um, so uh, not to get hung up on that specific, but can you tell me in recent years, some of the tweakings that, that you guys have done to your modeling on how to tabulate this and the kinds of annual or general conversations you have to make sure that you're, getting the most accurate sense of what the revenues and expenses are?
1: Um, we haven't done anything methodologically. We simply follow the NCAA's modeling. Um, we use their their reporting instrument, um, their reporting instrument's definitions. Um, those are the things that have changed um, a couple of times in the past few years. So the, the change that you were talking about, uh, in terms of debt service reporting that was a change that was a definition change that was put out by the NCAA um, a lot of schools were already including debt service but it wasn't 100% clear that the schools were supposed to do that so some there were a handful of schools that weren't doing that uh, for a variety of reasons some of which had to do in some instances had to do with the way state auditors uh, handled that expense um, so the 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 tweaks that we've made in sort of how we uh, report the data have been a function of how the NCAA has changed its methodology and then our ability to uh, reflect those changes in the space that we have available to us on our website and what we will display uh, in a way that we think is reader friendly. So we've done some repackaging of things. But again, it's all been guided by the NCAA's methodology, not ours.
0: Then let's. uh, I'd be curious about your thoughts about how their their methodology. So the uh, the aforementioned Andy Schwartz, when he was on the podcast, um, he brought up the argument, or we spoke at length about the argument that he has that schools and uh, you know following the mandates of the NCAA's agreed upon procedures report, um, schools in his mind grossly overstate. The, grant, the the cost of the grant and aid scholarships. Um, and he and other critics of amateurism of college athletics uh, argue that this overstatement is not incidental, that it's a rather conscious effort by intercollegiate athletics to hide a lot of the profit, particularly at the more uh, at the wealthier uh, college athletics departments um, by overstating how much the uh, grant and aid scholarships really cost the schools, it doesn't seem like these schools are making so much money. And sure enough, you know, we, we tend to see, uh, and, and athletics departments around the country tend to uh, loudly uh, loudly disclaim that, you know, no, that there, no one's making money, the, the, the departments are in deficit, um, and perhaps a corollary of that. Therefore, there's nothing. There's no money for the, the players to then, and, and no more additional money for the players to get. Um, do you think, picking up either on, on that thread or, or anything else, do you think that the NCAA is really getting down to the nuts and bolts of what college athletics departments are taking in, and, and, and more, more in terms of on, on the revenue side, but what they're taking in, or what they're spending in a given year on sports?
1: Um, that's about five different questions in one question. Indeed. Um, um, so, let me start. I'll, I'll pick one place to start. Um, in terms of it being a conscious effort to hide something or whatever else, you know, to me that's a, you know, that that's a question that is. A matter of one's point of view and one's opinion. I mean, I, I, I mean, I know Andy, and and, and I, you know, his, his work is, you know, is highly respected in, uh, economic, sports economic, uh, world, and he's been, um, an expert witness in a variety of his. Well, his firm has done expert work for plaintiffs in some of the cases against the NCAA so, I mean, it's a, you know, obviously it's a very reputable bunch of guys who do this work and they're not making it up. Um, so, you know, but for, if you're sitting in the athletic director's chair, um, you know, the scholarship cost, uh, you know, it's a real dollar cost now, you know, in the grand scheme of the cost for the university, uh, you know, then, you know, yeah, I mean, Andy and, uh, uh, guys who share his point of view uh, have a fair have a fair point. I mean, again, it's a question of how you look at it. Are you looking at it strictly through the lens of uh, you know the athlete from the athletic director's chair uh, and having to work within a university budgeting system, um, or are you looking at it uh, through you know the actual cost to the university writ large? Um, and you can, if you look at it in different ways, uh, you can get different answers and. You know, so we, again, because it's a, it's a fun, you know, it, it's this money that's moving around within the same university structure. It's the athletics department, with regard to the scholarship bill, it's the athletics department making an intra university transfer essentially to the bursar. So, you know, and what the actual cost is to the university of having another student, uh, you know, on its campus, in its dorms, in its classes, you know. That's a you know again you you know, Andy and those guys have looked at this you know uh, you know a lot, very closely and have talked about how that there is or there isn't a lot of real cost to the universities for this and so this charge that is made to the athletics department is overstated so you know I think that's where that all of that that all of that stuff comes from um, so I mean I get it from both ends of it I mean. You know, an athletics director is being told by his bosses at the university that you have, you know, you're generating this much money and you have to transfer from your pile of money, X dollars representing the scholarship bill, over to this other pile of money. Um, so, you know, the athletics director, it's a retail cost. Um, but, you know, I also get it from where, you know, from where, uh, Andy and other sports economists look at this as well. So, I mean, do I think it's a concerted effort? You know, I mean, the 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 uh, you know the the, uh, the the you know the NCAA against the different different there are different accounting systems at different schools and they run it different ways. Um, you know, I mean, do I you know if, if 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 it was a for profit. Uh, Enterprise. There might be other ways to bury those profits in other costs. So, I mean, it's a it's a really complicated area uh, of of finance, and you know, and and how and how all those things work. So, you know, it's it's hard to know how it would how it would go. I mean, you know, for some of the narrative that the NCAA has pursued in terms of uh, the relationship between amateurism uh, and the viability of its of its enterprise. Um, you know, sure. The NCAA doesn't want to, you know, the, the schools collectively. And I don't mean, they, they, don't forget. I mean, the NCAA isn't, uh, you know, isn't a group of guys in a building in Indianapolis. Absolutely. The, NCAA is, the NCAA is the schools. I mean, right? it's a member institution. So it's not fair to simply say, okay, well, geez, you know, this is, these are the motives of Mark Emmert and a group of guys, uh, in a you know, we're in the executive offices in Indianapolis. I mean, this is the schools uh, collectively. And so, you know, I mean again it, for, for schools that have huge revenues that are coming in from a lot of different places, unquestionably, you know, they they have a lot of revenue But there are lots of athletics departments that don't have a lot of revenue um, And you know well, you know, but the schools are making a concerted the schools also are making a concerted decision that we're going to spend university funds uh, on athletics, because we think it has value to the university as a whole. Whether it's a marketing thing for the university, whether it's a recruitment thing for students overall, whether it's a way to maintain contact with alums and donors. So I mean, you know, they view it as a as a way to market uh, the university. So I mean, again, it's a really complicated area, um, and you know how it boils around and back to the idea of you know whether the schools are making lots and lots of money uh you know some of them are and i suspect that some of them some of them are not making as much money so i mean you know again a lot of this depends on your on where you're looking at it from and how you're looking at it
0: It, it, i realize already the work that USA Today does to just gather this in an annual basis is enormous and that there's practical realities to this. But if, you know, just thinking theoretically, um, is there, is there a, have you, have you ever debated internally? Do you think that there's value in beginning to try to find some other way of getting at what the real costs are? Because you, you, as you mentioned, you know, d- depending on your perspective, the athletics director's perspective is different than the perspective of an, out, of an outside economist looking at amateurism. What is uh, what about what about the journalistic perspective? I mean, what what should we be reporting if we can uh, in you know, what what is the number we're trying to to arrive at or what's the most journalistically relevant number um, for what these schools are actually incurring? I mean, short
1: of making an effort to truly take apart the budget of all of these schools, you know, I think that, you know, for for all of its strengths and weaknesses, I mean, the NCAA reporting instrument is the best that we've got. Um, you know, I mean, the the instrument was created and the categories were defined not simply by a group of athletics directors, but through a cooperative effort of people um, in college sports, people who are involved in... <clears throat> Uh, you know, who work for outside accounting firms who audit schools, uh, university business officers. So the form and that instrument was not strictly developed by people in college athletics. There were lots of people from outside of college athletics who helped develop that form as well. Um, But, you know, short of really taking apart uh, a budget uh, yourself, I think it's really difficult Really difficult to do. I mean, even uh, you know, as far as I'm aware, even uh, folks like Andy have relied on the data from these NCAA reports or from the 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 information that the schools report through the U.S. Department of Education's Equity and Athletics Disclosure Act reporting, the EADA reporting. So I haven't seen an enormous number of places where schools, you know, somebody has sort of really tried to take apart the raw budget data. I'm not saying that it hasn't been done. Um, I'm not aware of there are many places that have been done. Um, and I think, you know, again, any, because of the contentiousness of the issue, my suspicion is is that any methodology that you bring to it uh, will be questioned by someone who's going to tell you that you're doing it wrong.
0: There's no doubt about that. There's no doubt about that. The um and again, I, I, I fully concede that it, as a uh, if you're trying to do a national compilation of data that's gonna be practically impossible to do. Um,
1: and I have to tell you too as well. I mean i'm I am not I am neither a CPA nor a lawyer. so <laughs> so you know, I mean, um you know I'm a reporter, and uh, you know, I, I can I, I, I have to admit to my own, Limitations in terms of, you know, somebody you know dropped a bunch of raw data on my desk, and my ability to be able to to do, uh, you know, something you to, to to develop a you know my own personal, uh, you know my own personal recipe for what to take, um, you know, I mean, are there again are there strengths and weaknesses in the NCAA's reporting system? No doubt. I mean, and I think people the people who who analyze these data. Uh, at the NCAA's central office would tell you that, and the people who compile these figures for the university athletics departments, the CFOs of those athletics programs, will also be able to tell you what are the strengths and weaknesses, and there are things about those reports that the CFOs uh, understand and find to be legitimate, and there are things that uh, CFOs at various schools, depending on their particular interests, find to be incredibly unfair. Uh, you know. Um, uh, so I mean it, you know again there's you know you I think think people around this are sort of sort of equally happy and equally unhappy about the current way that these numbers are reported
0: so in recent years I've noticed you as, a, as I'm sure many college football followers have noticed you as the guy who has uh, taken to Twitter to chronicle to chronicle in, in, in almost real time the sort of perpetual gravy train of intercollegiate athletics. So a few weeks ago, Fresno State played New Mexico and, and beat New Mexico, and I was on Twitter not long after the end of the game where I learned, thanks to your tweet, that that, that, that victory for Fresno State triggered more or less about $100,000 of, of additional compensation for the Bulldogs head coach, Jeff Tedford. I'm, when did you begin to do this, um, this kind of live tweeting of of the uh, of the bonuses and the and the additional compensation coaches received throughout the year?
1: Um, that's something that I've started just started doing within the last uh, couple three years. Um, you know, it, we again, it's sort of one of these things that sort of start, started started uh, doing it on a sort of a trial and error basis and see what people were interested in. And uh, it sort of seemed to, to grab people's interest, so I've started to become more active with it, particularly with football, uh, because the amounts of these bonuses for football head coaches, particularly, is uh, larger than it is for basketball coaches. Although for there, are, I, I've I've tweeted this for basketball during the NCAA tournament and around conference tournament time as well. Um, so I mean, the it's not like the bonuses for Coaches in basketball are insignificant, uh, but they are somewhat smaller in most cases than with football. Um, so, I mean, you know, again, it's just been a function of, of thinking that, that, you know, sort of a uh, you know, reader interest thing and an accountability thing and, uh, you know, pointing this out as they, as they go along. And we have the information, so why not put it out there?
0: So am I, I'm imagining your Saturdays throughout the college football season looking like you in front of a computer with a ton of windows open up and then you just figuring this all out or is or on the back end of of the USA Today of your of your database, is this stuff computerized in such a way that you can just get this very easily?
1: Uh a little bit of both. Um I wish it were I wish it could be automated. <laughs> <laughs> but uh there's really no, uh, we haven't been able to develop a way to sort of automate that to trigger to trigger this out in in real time. So so, uh, so, so yes. you have not
0: you have not been replaced yet by a bot,
1: not yet. Uh, so yes, it's a it's a function of keeping an eye on the scoreboard <laughs> uh, during a Saturday afternoon or Saturday evening um, I try to do this without it, you know, completely wrecking my life. Um, so uh, you know, but I'll be at places and I'll have some stuff written down ahead of time. I'll be checking my phone and, uh, you know, squeeze off a tweet from the phone and doing it like that. So, but yeah, basically what I'll do is I'll sit down, uh, every, you know, once a week and go through the standings and see who's eligible for, you know, who's going to be eligible to be, you know, who's, who has the ability to become eligible for a bowl game or, you know, because I've been through these contracts enough times, you begin to know where different trigger points are for guys uh you know, if they get a certain number of wins, whether or not it'll trigger out like a contract extension or some other uh some other uh incentive in the coach's contract. Um so you just by just by brute force repetition, um you begin I begin to sort of know what, you know, where to look uh in a given week beyond just becoming bowl eligible with a sixth win. Um and so I sit down every week and uh, at the beginning of the week and go through it. And I actually sit there and handwrite it onto, <laughs> onto a copy of that week's schedule. And, you know, it's sitting there using a highlighter and a pen and then watching how the results develop. What, what,
0: what is the what is the underlying message? I mean, I'm receiving from this a, a what I think to be the, the sort of salient message that's being communicated by this, which is just the money and who gets it in, in college sports. Um, what are you doing this with a clear, a clearly defined larger point or, you know, or is this just some combination of people, you know, readers find this interesting and, and, uh, and you're, you're now, you've now put yourself on your own hamster wheel.
1: Um, it's, I, I mean, no, I mean, I, I don't think that there's any point of view to it. I mean, to me, it's just a function of it's informing people uh, about the compensation of guys who are public employees. And that's what, you know, um, uh, football coaches at public universities are. They are public employees. Um, And while it is true that a lot of the money that they get paid comes from things like television contracts and are not you know from state appropriations. Um, these guys participate in or have access to uh, uh, benefit plans that are the same benefit plans that everybody else at a public college or university gets. Um, also, uh, while athletics departments have a lot of money that again is not coming from state appropriations or from the general public, um, it is a system that is. Uh, allowed certain advantages under the tax code uh, donations and a lot of other revenues that flow through the system do so on a untaxed basis because these are all nonprofit organizations or uh, because they are state agencies or whatever so there's a level on which all of this is tax advantaged um, and so you know to, to me it's you know that's it's Nothing more, nothing less than that. I mean, it, the college, the coaches' compensation can be viewed through a lot of different lenses. I mean, you can say uh, that you know college coaches, uh, you know, well, geez, movie stars get paid tens of millions of dollars too, and so you know, what's the big deal? Um, you know, so it's, again, it, it it's a, it all depends on how you're looking at it. But there is a level on which that uh, college football coaches and basketball coaches are the most highly paid. Public employees, public sector employees in the country, uh, they also operate within a higher ed environment as well, where they are uh, the most highly paid people in the higher ed sector. And you know, when you're somebody who's paying a mandatory athletics fee uh, to a university, whether you're the, the, you know, whether you as a student and you're paying your own bills, or if you're a parent and you're paying. Uh, the bills for your for your child, and one of those costs is an athletics fee that helps uh, that helps run the athletics department. That you might be interested in where your money is going. So to me, you know, I, I, I look like at this sort of again as as, account, as kind of as a form of account, of accountability reporting, and you know, as it was said in all the president's men, you know, just follow follow the money.
0: I'm so glad you brought the, this point up about all the ways in which college sports is kind of propped up through by the public because I feel you know this is a conversation that's being had right now at New Mexico where Eddie Nunez is trying you know in a a very conventional way to to minimize the taxpayer burden of of his athletics department by merely talking about um, the amount of state appropriation money that goes to support UNM athletics and then I think very wittingly ignoring all of the things that you just mentioned, all of the way in which uh, federal tax um, or, or, or federal uh, tax income is is given or, or, or used to um, or utilized to support college athletics, all the taxable benefits for donors that, you know. Th- well, don't
1: forget now that the, the, the tax bill, the tax law change last late last year made it so that um while, you know, donations made unfettered can still be tax deductible. Don't forget that a lot of donations to athletics departments are these sort of annual booster club donations that were made, um, you know, from which you could get benefits, you know, like preferential uh, seating locations and things like that. And the tax, the tax deduction that went with that, with that went with that is has gone away. So if you're making a donation to an athletics department that does not give you some other benefit, then it's tax deductible. But uh, others are not. But you're still dealing, again, you're dealing with revenue that moves within the system because they're nonprofit organizations. They're not taxed the same way corporate dollars are, are taxed. Right. No. Now, I mean, there's a whole other conversation about the level of what corporations and for-profit enterprises pay in taxes and whether or not even if college sports were made to be a, a for-profit separate enterprise whether or not other costs wouldn't bury wouldn't bury the revenue uh, in a way where it could be shown to be a loss or a break even proposition or whatever i mean uh, i've been told by people who to do know about accounting and business and tax law that you know that that could be that could be accomplished so Bear that in mind. So I just want want to, you know, provide that caveat to what you're saying.
0: Would you want to cover college sports in any other way um, insofar as you have to insofar as you will continue to cover college sports than covering it through this lens of the economics?
1: Um,
0: Would you want to cover? I mean, would you be interested in sort of a conventional covering the on field performance of of college sports?
1: Well, I think, I mean, yeah, I mean, if somebody said to me, hey, you know, we're done with you, uh, you know, we don't want to do this kind of reporting anymore. We want you to cover college sports in a different way. Um, you know, there are lots of other ways to cover college sports, uh, both nationally and, you know, within a particular university beat, uh, that goes beyond covering games and writing about, uh, writing about the players. Um, so you know I mean there's this this particular way that I go about doing it um, I mean I, you know there are other things that there yeah I mean there are definitely other areas that that are of interest to me um, you know would I you know could I could I handle going back into a situation where I'm, you know part of my job involves covering games and writing feature stories Um sure I mean there there are lots <laughs> there there are, I mean there are a variety of different things that that go into that but I think you know anybody who's covering I think anybody who's covering college sports these days uh, does not have the luxury of simply covering it um, in a situation where all you're doing is you know writing game stories or game driven analysis or personality profiles I think you you know, you have you have no choice other than you know, except to have to cover uh, other areas of it. Um, so, I'm not, I'm not sure that that's a direct answer to your question. But
0: well, I do find. I mean, you and I have both been a, a part of an industry, uh, particularly in terms of newspapers at, at the local level, but this has gone on at the national level too, where we've just seen uh the the layoffs galore um and yet there's still quite a few newspapers around the country despite their uh their dire economic straits that maintain a college sports reporter um covering the local university and i feel you know i I haven't done the uh a a meta-analysis so this is largely anecdotal but my my sense is that you know a lot of these reporters are still covering it in a very on on the field results oriented way. Um, And I and I I'm troubled by that in in the in the context of how uh, how few resources there are for local news coverage, how important this conversation about the economics of college sports is both locally and nationally, and that there are still quite a few people who are covering um, college football or, or men's basketball programs. Um, I feel like it it behooves any local reporter. I know I'm talking now to a national reporter, but it behooves any any local newspaper or the reporter who works for them to really focus on this that this is where this is where the real journalism of college sports needs to be applied. Um, there's plenty of fan sites and and university athletic departments themselves that are all too happy to put out the, recruiting information and the practice updates, and that, you know, the, the, the real journalism of college sports, you know, has to center around the economics of college sports at this point.
1: Well, I mean, I think there's lots of real journalism to be done in a lot of other ways. I mean, there are all kinds of, of really interesting uh, enterprising type of stories that can be done that don't necessarily have to do with the uh, economics of sports, um, I mean I think there are a lot of a lot of different issues that are in play uh, around college athletics that have to do with legal issues that have to do with uh, you know concussion related sure. issues that have sure. to do with athlete mental health issues that have to do with uh, Title IX issues both in the traditional sense of gender equity and in the more modern recent days sense of, uh, the issue of sexual assault on campus. Um, so, I mean, I think there, you know, there are a lot of different areas that have to do with college sports coverage that go that aren't just the economic uh, issues of it. That, and I think that there are a lot of people who are doing a lot of really good work and are doing a lot of really hard, the hard stuff, as well. I mean, I think you know, I mean, some folks. So there are some folks whose jobs it is. That is to to provide that game coverage and that is to provide uh, that more personal kind of uh, coverage of their athletics programs. But I think I, I mean again I can't tell you this empirically, um, but I think there are a lot of there are a lot of really smart, hardworking uh, folks out there who are do- who are doing a lot of really smart, hard reporting um, around. Colleges and universities, and it's not just a fun. And it's not just being done by, you know, large news organizations. It's being done, uh, you know, in a lot of different ways. I mean, the work that you're doing. Uh, there are, you know, folks who work for other uh, web-based uh, organizations. There are people who are working for smaller newspapers and uh, television outlets uh, who do a lot of good who do a lot of good work in a lot of areas that where it's a lot of work and it's hard stuff to do. And it's not just showing up uh, in a press box and describing what's happening in front of you on a field, you know? So again, I mean, I I don't, I can't describe, I can't tell you this in an expert empirical way, but you know, I know what I read and, and I know where I read it from. And there's a lot of good work being done by a lot of people.
0: I know, and I, I I I join in that in that sentiment. I, I feel like my, uh, my my criticism of this is less about the reporters who are doing this and more about the opportunities or the guidance that they're given um, at at many places where they where they work. Again, considering that, at, especially at the level of a, of a local newspaper, um, you know the one the one place that this kind of coverage is not going to be done is on a fan site. Or, or or given out uh, by the university itself the, like the real value added and and you and I, I was too limited in, in, in the scope of the kinds of coverage you're right. sexual assault on campus, concussions, um, athlete treatment, etc all sort of falls under that rubric. Um, I, I guess I'm so at this moment, I'm, I'm, you know, as as newspapers are trying to sort of define themselves in this world, local newspapers are trying to define themselves in this world with fan sites um, and with the the sorts of efforts that athletic departments themselves are trying to make to be the the sole distributor of news about their their programs. That the that this is, you know, this is both what's left to do, and 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 you know, all this stuff is. Is uh, I would say what's most important to do. I wanted to um, end on a note about the affordability of all this for schools that are maybe in the group of have-nots. So I'll, I'll return to I'll return to my uh, subject matter uh, jurisdiction at New Mexico. Um, I get a sense in general whether or not it's coaching salaries or buyouts or any of the other factors that play into the expense side. Of, the, uh, of an athletic department's budget. Um, a school like New Mexico is increasingly, uh, you know, along with uh, similar schools, is increasingly uh, frittering away from the, uh, from the Power Five schools. And, you know, this has been well recognized in, in media uh, that there's this growing gap between the have-nots and the haves, In covering New Mexico over the last two years, I've just paid witness, I feel, to a school that doesn't really want to reconcile this fact, um, and is kind of still striving or, or at least asserts itself to still be striving to be part of this game, um, and to still be, you know, still have the potential to be nationally relevant or nationally competitive in football, even, even though, uh, all, indi- all uh, evidence points to the contrary. Um, what, do you, what do you think is the, the time horizon for when this orbit uh, will not still include everybody, when there's going to be this split, this real split between the Power Five and, and the others in terms of competing in the same division or uh, competing against each other? Uh, because it doesn't seem like, and, and maybe you have examples uh, that would be outliers, but it doesn't seem like many schools in New Mexico's position are making an affirmative, proactive step to getting to that point of where, what they can actually afford um, going forward. And they're just kind of hanging in there uh, and, and, and spending more than what they may have budgeted in order to hang in there. Uh, even though all signs are, are somewhat gloomy.
1: Uh, again, I mean, this just becomes a this is a really, really complicated question and a really complicated issue for schools. Um, you know, at a certain level, it becomes a question of the university leadership and the university's constituents' willingness. What is you know what are they willing to pay? Uh, If the revenues aren't there, what are they willing to pay to be able to continue to make an effort to compete? So, and what sports um, and how you want to go about doing it? I mean, certainly with a school like New Mexico, New Mexico has been able to have really big time national uh, level relevance in, you know, a variety of different sports and it's had a few... Years in which it's spiked up in football, um, and you know, so you know, to dismiss New Mexico uh, as being uh, capable of being competitive nationally on any level would seem to be, you know, would seem to be selling the, the program short. Um, but you know, I mean, there are already certain inherent differences in the way schools are set up. I mean. and and their ability to do certain things. Um, but there are also a lot of really good athletes, you know, at the top end of high school sports who make colleges and university programs, you know, that are, uh, that are less well financed, you know, really competitive in certain sports in certain years. Um, you know, I mean, if it were strictly a function of money, Texas would win all the national championships and everything. And that is not the case. Um, but you know, you know, is the, I mean, but is you know, is the University of Texas playing the same game as Savannah State University? No, um, you know. But is does that you know? They, so it, it depends on sort of what your goals are. are. You looking for a good to create a good experience for student athletes within conferences or within certain competitive environments or what? So I mean, it sort of depends. Again, this a lot of this has to do with sort of where you're where you're looking at it. Um, that you know that for to create these athletic experiences for the students who are playing those sports, um, you know, and, and how you how you look at it. But yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that you know it's a different different deal at Texas, uh, you know, than it is at Texas State. Um, and you know, I mean, is there? I mean, I think the 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 thing that potentially is sort of a fulcrum point, even within. The schools that are the more you know, the, that are do, doing better financially or have a lot more money available to them potentially would be the the issue of whether or not the compensation for the athletes will continue to be uh, limited or whether or not the compensation for athletes is going to be rendered, I should say, less less limited, if not unlimited, by uh, some of the court cases that are that are going on and particularly right now the one court case that is uh pending in california the which is uh, called the alston case and it is challenging directly the ncaa's the you know the 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 school's ability nationally to have certain limits on the uh what athletes can get for playing college sports if those limits go away you may see schools realign themselves based on who is willing to provide what benefits to their athletes and that could be a place where you may see some reorganization of, of how of how sports of how sports goes
0: the um, yeah I I've, I've brought that up with Andy Schwartz as well I think he, he had a different take on that He, he did not think, That that was going to be the motivating factor, or or ought to be the motivating factor for the reorganization, because his argument in some cases, and and maybe I'm marrying his argument with my own argument, um, is that schools, smaller schools, poorer schools, um, you know, could the 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 substantial change would just be who's getting that money, uh, the compensation of coaches would be reduced and the money would then be, some of that would be diverted to players as opposed to schools because of, of amateurism rules being um, being lifted, uh, the, he, he didn't see the impact of that being schools like New Mexico then deciding to just get out of division one sports on account of it.
1: Uh, yeah, I don't, no I'm not necessarily saying that New Mexico would, a school like New Mexico would get out of division one sports. Um, but you may see sort of a realigning of schools around the, the contours of who is willing to provide what benefits for the athletes, and it may and and that may not change anything either. I mean, don't forget that you know within the NCAA basketball tournament, you know, I mean, the Ivy League schools still like the idea of competing against Kentucky, you know, and the Ivy League schools don't award athletic-based scholarships. So, you know, on a broad national basis in, uh, you know, sports, you may, there, there, there may not be a big difference that, you know, you'll still have those championships that will have that compelling thing to them, you know, or have that piece to them that a lot of people find pretty compelling, the notion of the prospect of the big upset, you know, where UMBC beats Virginia. Um, and... You know, so there so there may not be a huge change. I mean, there may be some change in sort of conference alignments and things like that. So it's possible that there's not, that you that you not, you won't see schools withdraw from division, you know, the, the notion of schools just simply withdrawing from division one. Um, and don't forget, division two does allow scholarships. So if you're saying, you know, if that's a big cost of it or whatever, you know, then you're into a division three model. And I, you know, and I just think the larger, state institutions are going to want to compete like that. And, you know, they maybe, I don't know, maybe there'll be sort of a uh, uh, another sort of level of championship like you've seen in football, where you've sort of seen this stratification within Division One, where you have the FCS schools that conduct their own championship and the FBS schools still competing in the bowl games and so on like that. And perhaps there would be another, you know, sort of another sort of sub-stratification within individual sports uh, or you know within division one uh, you know it's hard to know I mean right now you sort of have a sort of a you know three level uh, setup within division one with the football bowl so division schools the championship subdivision schools and the schools that don't have don't have football teams uh, like Gonzaga so um, yeah I mean I you know, I'm not I'm not certain that it that you know you'll see like a huge shift like of the schools sort of getting out of Division One entirely. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, with, but with that, it, it's, it's, it's hard to know. But, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt there is that – there's going to be that, that inherent financial difference, uh, and I don't, see that, uh, going away. Uh, I don't see that going away. I don't see that going away.
0: Yeah, I would agree with you. I would agree with you. All right. Well, it's it's now Friday afternoon. We're talking. I imagine you have to get your uh, prep sheet going for tomorrow's uh, bonuses. So up, gonna...
1: Already done. Since okay. you have now, we're now playing col- playing college football games on Tuesdays and Thursdays. That's good point. Uh, at, this, at this time of year, I have to be. Got to be ready to go on Tuesday. (laughs) Tuesday. Got to be ready to go on Tuesdays.
0: Well, I look forward (laughs) to the reading going forward all of the uh, all the coaches making all the money for their teams becoming bowl eligible. (laughs) 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 All right, It'll 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 be active again, I suspect. I imagine. All right. Well, I really appreciate your time. Sure. All right. You take care.
1: Thanks. Bye bye.
0: So, there you have it. I would again like to thank my guest, Steve Berkowitz. I encourage you to give him a Twitter follow, at ByBerkowitz. You can find an accompanying story to this podcast at nmfishbowl.com, where you can find all of my Lobo-related content. This would include my recent deep dive into the nebulous and disjointed world of UNM's athletic booster organizations. I encourage you to check that out. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at editor at You can also find me on Twitter, at nmfishbowl.com, all one word. The NM Fishbowl podcast is available for downloading on iTunes. In lieu of a bull eligibility bonus, I happily accept likes and subscriptions. The music you are hearing comes from the Freak Fandango Orchestra's Requiem for a Fish. As always, I appreciate you lending me your ears. And until next time, I'm Daniel Livett.